0: Welcome back to New Books in Religion. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Matthew Hedstrom about his great new book, The Rise of Liberal Religion, Book Culture, and American Spirituality in the 20th Century, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2013. Expressions of religious belief through popular media are a regular occurrence in our contemporary age but the circulation and negotiation of religious identities in public context has a fairly long history in American culture. Hedstrom looks beyond the church to determine how religious liberalism was popularized through mainstream book culture. In this great new book, he examines mid-century middle-brow society at the intersection of Protestant liberalism, therapeutic culture, and American consumerism. Through an examination of resources such as book clubs, reading programs, key authors, bestsellers, and new publishing initiatives in religion, he argues that American spiritual life during the mid-20th century happens through religious commodities. In our conversation, we discuss social practices of reading, William James, publishing companies, the effects of the world wars, mysticism, psychology, consumerism, Jewish and Catholic voices, a turn to the East, and the intersecting religious trajectories of the early 20th century. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Matt Hedstrom. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome again to New Books in Religion. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Hedstrom, uh, and we're going to talk about his great new book, The Rise of Liberal Religion, Book Culture and American Spirituality in the 20th Century. Thanks, Matt, for for making the time. Uh, I know you're very busy, so thank you. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm doing great and uh, delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, of course. This is, um, as many listeners already know, this is a really uh, wonderful book. It's it's gotten a lot of attention already. And uh, c- congratulations, you you won the American Society of Church History uh, Award for the best first book. So that's, that's great. So we all know this is a great book. And I, I appreciate you making the time to, to talk about it. But before we get into what you're uh, examining here in the book, could you tell us a little bit about um, how you got interested in the study of religion, perhaps people that have been influential either in your study or kind of in the way you approach religion.
1: Sure, yeah. So I guess there are kind of two ways I could tell that story or answer that question um, the sort of more academic way and the more personal way. The more academic way would be to say that I kind of came to the study of religion or religious studies uh, late and through the back door. Uh, I was a, I was a history major as an undergraduate. I thought I was going to be a Supreme Court justice. I was uh, interested in intellectual history, political history, all kinds of stuff. Um, I took one religious studies class as an undergraduate, And that was in my senior year in college. And um, a a really excellent class, actually. It was called um, Theologies of the Political. So we did kind of liberation theology and Reinhold Niebuhr and some sort of just war stuff. uh, That was a class that made me think, oh, I could actually do religious studies and think about some of the stuff that I already knew I was interested in. Um, nevertheless, when I decided to go to grad school, I went in American studies kind of naively actually, although I'm, I'm very glad I did, but, um, I went because I knew I was interested in us history and culture. And I thought that American studies would be a sort of capacious place to do that. You know, I could, um, and so Same kind of deal. I went to to grad school and was um, taking courses in, you know, uh, race, American literature, intellectual, cultural history, these kinds of things, and not really doing much with um, the study of religion. But uh, towards the end of, of coursework, I just... I started to think more and more about writing say seminar papers and those kinds of things in religion topics in, in, in American religious history, just because I thought it was understudied in American studies. I still think it's understudied in, in American studies. I think thankfully it's not understudied anymore by us historians, but understudied in American studies. And so, um, I just uh I just started doing some writing and uh the more uh I explored the more I became interested
0: were there specific people that really used, you know, got hooked to like wow this is this is where it's at I, I need to do stuff like this or personally that kind of pushed you to think
1: about this stuff more Yeah, you mean so so stuff that I was reading that kind of Sure. Um Oh, let me think about that. Um, uh, John Butler's A Wash in the Sea of Faith was a book that I read in a uh, just in a history course. Um, I actually had a uh, professor uh, who was a, an important mentor to me at the University of Texas, Howard Miller, who taught the sort of general historiography class for graduate students doing um, U.S. history at the University of Texas, who happens to be a, a, a religious historian. And so he assigned some books in American religious history, again, just for the general historiography class. And I remember clearly Butler's Awash a Sea of Faith. Um, that book was important to me because he, he brings – In some ways, some kind of non-traditional topics. Um, He's very interested in folk religion, persistence of uh, what we might call occult or esoteric beliefs. uh, You know, into the, the United States, into British colonial North America, long after we might expect those things to have been around. That was exciting to me, and really. You know, even as I went on and wrote a dissertation, wrote a book, questions about what does religion look like outside of churches and denominations has actually been one of my big questions. So um, I would put that book high in the list.
0: Yeah. So um, could you tell us a little bit about how this particular project started to emerge? And then um, since this is uh, presumably from your dissertation, correct? That's right. So could you talk a little bit about the process of of going from the dissertation to the book,
1: if there was any kind of rethinking after you were done? Yeah. Yeah. I'll just say one other thing in in response to the first question. Yeah, sure. And that is, um, I come from three generations of preachers. And so I always think, and I think this is true in many academic fields, but I know it's true in, in, in religious studies, there's that complex mix of what we do as kind of um, at least for me anyway, sort of uh, uh, honoring and respecting the uh, inheritance that comes with that and working through it as a kind of very expensive long-term therapy. (laughs) And, um, and so, you know, once I started allowing myself to study religion um, those kinds of more personal matters came more and more to the fore. And in a certain extent, extent to answer the, your next question, that's how I would phrase it, allowing myself to study religion. It was the kind of thing that was almost too close to home. I said, I'm not going to study it. I'm going to study other things. going to study other things. And then finally said, you know what? This is where my passion lies. This is where some really interesting intellectual questions um, arise for me, and so, so I'm just going to do it. And and so so to start thinking about how I got into the dissertation. Again, the 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 questions for me were about um, what does religion look like, and how does it work outside of church. Um, I wanted to think about. Uh, mass culture, consumerism, you know, and, and how does religion participate? Um, and so I had questions, but I didn't really have substance, you know, I didn't know how to go about doing it. And my, my, uh, advisor, Bob Abzug, um, at the university of Texas, he mentioned, um, kind of offhand one, one day, the, uh, something called the Religious Book Club. Um, and I thought, oh, that's interesting, you know, which is chapter two of my book now. I thought, well, that's that's interesting because looking at, you know, a book club could kind of see how popular religious ideas circulate. And, you know, that was the kind of uh, string that I kept pulling and that got me into um, this whole world of, of book culture, which I just found to be a really fruitful way of um, watching religion operate in a consumer marketplace in a kind of a mass culture environment. And then it was just a matter of digging through the archives and finding the right uh, sources and the right stories to tell. So that's, that's kind of how the dissertation got um, formatted. And planned, let's see, the the, the dissertation to book process. Um, what can I say about that? I can say that for me, you know, I think it's very different for lots of people. My advisor pushed me hard to write a book-like dissertation. So, for example, I didn't have a big, long literature review in the first chapter that needed to get excised for the book and those kinds of things. Uh, But the most important things that happened was a kind of refinement of questions and of vocabulary. Uh, For me, this happened in conversation with Lee Schmidt, Literal in-person conversation, but also with his his work, uh, especially his book *Restless Souls*. And then a little bit later on, it happened in conversation again, both face to face and uh, in through through his writings with uh, David Hollinger. His work on American liberal Protestantism and this idea of kind of cultural victory of liberal Protestantism, despite denominational and organizational decline those were matters that weren't really present um, or or, or at, at, on the surface of the dissertation and so I had to do do some work to get them out um, and you know it's interesting uh, a few changes to vocabulary and some some re-emphasized questions can entail a whole lot of rewriting to make it work. And uh, I was actually surprised. I thought, oh, my dissertation, you know, hey, that's pretty good. It's in pretty good shape. My advisor pushed me to make it book like, this will go really smoothly. And, uh, you know, ultimately I think it went well, but it took a lot more work than I expected.
0: Well, uh, work well worth the effort uh, because it really is an excellent book here. Um, I want to ask you kind of um, about this idea of kind of beyond the church because uh, you, you know you're very explicit about this in the book that this is something you were thinking about and what this does uh, for understanding kind of American religious culture. Um, could could you kind of give us a sense of what do we what do we do when we think about religion beyond the church? Um, h- how do we do this? Um, where does one look? I mean, it sounds like you had this kind of uh, kind of coincidental suggestion, but um you know more broadly obviously you're you're once you start looking uh you you find so much more in the book here
1: yeah right exactly um and I should just say just to be clear, I think church history is really important, and so i i would I want my work to be in a uh in conversation with those who do um church history. And think that the field of religious history American religious history should should it really encompass church history or broadly understood kind of organized religion history and these these cultural questions um, so for me, I went into the area of, of media you know print print media in this case um, and I think that there's um, a lot of interesting work happening in religion and media and um, increasingly in in book history and book studies, Candy Gunther Brown, uh, Dave Nord, these folks have done um, work in the 19th century. And uh, Dan Vocket Brown has got a dissertation that, you know, will, will soon I'm sure appear in book form on evangelicals and, and book culture in the 20th century. So it's, it's, it's a lively field now. And I'm very glad to be part of that conversation and religion and media broadly, religion and print in particular. Um, but I think the whole area, even broader than media and, Uh, Consumer culture, you know, and again, Lee Schmidt, um, uh, consumer rights, and Larry Moore, uh, Selling God, you know, some of this kind of work has really mapped the terrain there that I I see my work as kind of fitting into. Um, I just think you can't think about the United States, certainly the United States post-Civil War. Without thinking about consumer capitalism front and center, you know, just the ways in which we are shaped by advertising, uh, by marketplace logics, and to somehow imagine religion as a sphere apart from that makes no sense to me. So um, I knew that I wanted to, to, to really engage with those questions.
0: Now, uh, you you begin at the the, the kind of early twentieth century. Um, for those that are perhaps not initiated, um, kind of can you can you paint paint a picture of what's going on here? You're, you're talking about the kind of the confluence of uh, what you call religious liberalism, book culture, which you've been talking about here, American consumerism. Um, what what is kind of the religious landscape look like and what what are you trying to get at what's the kind of narrative you're trying to, to uh, dissect here
1: yeah so in, in one of in one sense one of the big questions I wanted to think about is how did the ideas and a term that I use in the book religious sensibilities of a kind of intellectual vanguard of the late 19th century become middle-class popular uh american religious sensibilities which doesn't mean you know ubiquitous but it just means common um, by the middle of the 20th century and so so yeah so i start with this um kind of um, intellectual environment of the late 19th and early 20th century, the key figure there being William James. Um, These are folks who are um, inheritors of transcendentalism. They're creatures of the modern research university, especially in the case of James, but many others deeply informed by this new academic discipline psychology and they're using the tools of the, of the research university to kind of map, um, you know, the, the, the terrain of the spirit terrain that has, has been the domain of church of theology, but they're starting to, um, wonder how the tools of science, especially psychology can, Um, can help understand that. And to a certain degree, uh, I present William James and and his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, as a, um, perhaps to some who who don't know it uh, uh, super well, a surprisingly kind of pious book. Uh, And what I mean by that is I think, I think that the project of the book is in some ways to, to speak to folks like him, kind of alienated, educated, post-Darwinian, post-psychological, modern people, and say, how can you still believe? How can you still retain some sense of the transcendent in this, you know, as M- Max Weber said, in this disenchanted world? And he tried uh, very hard and very systematically to find some protected place of the transcendent that the modern world hadn't um, completely uh, obliterated. And to me, that that's kind of a starting point um, that others picked up on. And part of the reason why James and Varieties of Religious Experience was so important to later 20th century popular religious writers because he gave them a framework for thinking about the transcendent. His his language, James's language, was mysticism, employing science rather than running from it uh, to do that. So that kind of um uh late nineteenth century psychological and mystical interest that I think James best exemplifies was where I started, where I wanted to start. That's in the introduction to the book. And then the questions that I wanted to ask were say, okay, what were the mechanisms of culture that got these ideas, these ways of thinking, these liberal religious sensibilities out into the world?
0: So, um, you, you do this through what you call middle brow culture, Right? Could you could you yeah. tell us a little bit about what what exactly is middle-brow culture, and then how uh, books begin to and and you know the, everything revolving around books uh, begin to kind of popularize these these ideas that in the you know at the turn of the century are, are
1: more kind of academic or not as mainstream. Yeah, yeah. So middle-brow is a term. That I mean, it, that was used in this time period in the nineteen teens and twenties. Um, so it's a, it's a term that comes from the moment, but has to a certain extent become a term of art in um, popular literary studies today. And uh, Jan Radway and Joan Shelley Rubin are the two Americanists who have written the the kind of seminal books on this. Um, Joan Rubin's book is called The Making of Middlebrow Culture, and it's usually a, a term um, employed mostly to talk about um, popular writing of the interwar years, although sometimes used later as well. Um, you know, it has a kind of, or it can have a kind of pejorative tone to it because, Many uh, academic critics in the middle decades of the 20th century were sort of horrified by it, thought it was particularly threatening to high culture, kind of debased high culture. You know, low culture, folk, popular, that's all good because it's it's authentic, it's, it's of the people, but it's this middle that's kind of watered down, um... Inauthentic high culture, and that's what's really dangerous. So there's this this uh, discourse that comes out of out of the mid century critics that is still around, um, but for myself and for others who um, write and think about this kind of culture today, uh, the term middle browism is, a, is a, just a much more neutral descriptor. And I think about it not so much as a classification system for authors or books. This is a middle-brow book. This is a middle-brow author. But rather thinking about um, the way a particular book is presented, is marketed, and the way in which readers, the the expectations um, that readers bring to the text and both, both in terms of the marketing side and the expectations side, um, I think that there's a there's a very earnest, striving quality to middle brow. It says this is going, this is self improvement. I'm going to read this because it's going to help solidify my class status. Because it's going to be good for me in some ways. There's a kind of eat your broccoli, take your vitamins quality about it. This is good literature. This is. Uh, an important book. So I'm going to read the latest work from Harry Emerson Fosdick because he's an important thinker. And um, I'm going to not just learn about Fosdick, but through him I'm going to learn about, you know, uh, great ideas of the Christian world and the Western world. And this, um, this, middle-brow culture that, that arose um, after the turn of the, of the 20th century that really took off in the 1920s is what um, religious leaders tapped into to uh, promote liberal religious ideas, and we can talk about that some more, but um, you know, key institutions of middle-brow culture that were inventions of the 1920s are the book club, so the Book of the Month Club is the, the prime example of that. Uh, Reader's Digest. Um, book, extensive book reviews in popular magazines and newspapers. Uh, these kinds of things are uh, the, the, the institutions of middle-brow culture that liberal religious figures uh, tapped into to get their ideas out.
0: Yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, how producers kind of moderated uh, how they wanted people to consume or read books. And I mean, of course, you could you could talk specifically about the religious book club, which is a great example of this.
1: Yeah. Um, well, so one of the things that I um, talk about in The first chapter, actually, before I get to the religious book club, is religious book week. And this can get confusing because we have book weeks and book clubs, (laughs) other book weeks and all these things. But there are all these promotional campaigns. And they very much, um, they're very invested in shaping how readers encounter the books. Uh, reading Reading in the right way and for the right reasons becomes important. Uh, Because one of the concerns about mass culture, and it's, I mean, still today, um, but a concern that that we see in the 19th century with the sort of a rise of really mass print is how do people know how to make good choices? You know, reading is powerful. Um, Reading can shape character. It can impact, you know, your salvation, So, but there's all kinds of stuff out there. There's no, um, imprimatur here in, you know, Protestant America. There's no, um, uh, anybody, you know, or just about anybody can get control of a printing press and put their stuff out there in the free market of ideas. And how do you know what's good? Um, and then once you know what's good, how do you read it in the right way? These were these are these are religious concerns, but they're mass culture concerns. Um and so if you look at the um religious week of the nineteen twenties, you see slogans like good books build character or uh a refinement on that, religious books build character. Um, you know, character being something that uh, can help the individual stand up in the face of all of the forces of the modern world that's pushing and pulling in all kinds of directions. Um, and if you read the right books, good books, religious books, the books that, you know, we are promoting here, um, you can be, uh, you can make it in this, in this tough modern world. So on the the good books build character poster from the mid-1920s for this Religious Book Week, there's this very sort of robust, virile-looking Abraham Lincoln, right, the kind of quintessential Good American um, figure. When you get the Religious Book Club, modeled after the Book of the Month Club, founded just a year after the Book of the Month Club, then you have an even more direct form of reading recommendation, right? I mean, you're a member of the book club and an editorial committee sends you the book of the month. And not only do they send you the book of the month, but they send you a newsletter with reviews of that book and other books. And so those reviews, in a sense, tell you how to read it, tell you what you can get out of it. This is a very direct way of trying to help folks navigate this very confusing world of mass culture of, um, a media environment in which authorities are few and far between. Um, so that's what I see. That's what I see as, as really important about, um, this confluence of, of religion and middle-brow culture in this period.
0: And, and uh, publishers, of course, become uh, central to this. And uh, in a later chapter, you focus specifically on kind of the, the development of uh, basically departments or sections of publishers that focus specifically on religion. Um, can you tell us a little bit about about this, this kind of focus on religion as a, a, a publishing theme that uh, became very important?
1: Yeah. Yeah, this is something, I, uh, again – I didn't really expect when I first got into this research. I just thought, well, religious books. People have always sold religious books, you know. I mean, that's Gutenberg, right? I mean, print and <laughs> religion is about as old story as it gets. So I just thought this would be um kind of in the background. Um but what I realized, what I learned, is in the nineteen twenties some big changes happened. Um re- uh religious publishing prior to the 1920s, was almost exclusively the domain of denominational presses and presses that were kind of explicitly religious in character. Um, And what happened in the 1920s is that some of the general trade New York presses established religion departments. And what what they were... Coming to understand, and and I've I've found some just really what I think of as as kind of wonderful quotes from uh, publishers and in in the twenties is um, we can just sell religious books like we sell any other books. We don't have to treat them as special. Uh, one person says you don't have to be an apostle to sell religious books. You can sell them like you sell automobiles or chewing gum. Just treat them as commodities in a marketplace to be packaged and advertised and sold and that there's good business in doing this. And so I focus in particular on Harper um, that established their religion department, um, became probably the most significant religion department of any trade press in the 20th century – Established their press in the night, their their religion department in the in the late twenties, but so did Macmillan, and so did a bunch of other big uh, presses. And to a certain degree, oh, what I think is happening there is folks are starting to realize that some of the structures of middle brow culture, like the uh, religious book club, are out there, so they can just Put their product into the marketplace without having to, to um, worry about what its religious effects are going to be. They can sell it in, you know, at Macy's and Wanamaker's. doesn't have to go through religious um, bookstores. Just treat it like a commodity out there, knowing that there are structures in place like book clubs, like the American Library Association, which was starting to get into the business of recommending good religious books there are these structures out there and that will help readers navigate the, the open waters of the marketplace and so that's no longer the responsibility of the religious publisher and just we can we can be much more uh, commercial entrepreneurial in what we do and it's okay um, much more thorough kind of embrace of the marketplace prior to the 20s, really, in, in the late 19th century and, and throughout the 19th century. There's a, there's a much more ambivalence. People are looking at the growing print marketplace and say, hey, this is great. Look at all these new opportunities for getting the word out. Um, maybe we're, you know, we're building God's kingdom here. Millennial possibilities of mass print. But boy, this might also be really dangerous. You know, this gets into the wrong hands, We could get all kinds of dangerous religious ideas out there. Um, Also, what is it? Does it sully? You know, are we being profaned by the marketplace? These were uh, 19th century questions that by the 1920s, liberal religious folk had more or less answered by saying, let's embrace the marketplace. Let's get our stuff out there. We've got the mechanisms of sort of middle-brow culture to steer people through these open waters, and um, and that that ambivalence about the marketplace is greatly diminished.
0: Now, to jump ahead a little bit here, you um, you have a. a- I guess the next two chapters are kind of interrelated, but really you're talking about some some of the effects of World War II on reading culture and uh, book production, Um, but also um, kind of the uh, perspective of kind of the religious dimension of American life is is almost kind of reconsidered here in in kind of the throes of this common enemy. So – can you talk a little bit about some of the effects of World War II as far as uh, it goes to book culture?
1: So it's a, it's an important turning point. Um, you know, I guess that's kind of a commonplace in any, any kind of history of the 20th century, um, but I find it to be true in in my story as it is in so many others. Um, and and to me, the the turning point is um from a, a largely liberal Protestant story of the twenties and thirties into a Protestant Catholic Jew story. And you know, we and that moment, um fairly quickly, I mean within a couple decades, becomes an even broader story of religious cosmopolitanism. People willing even eager to read across the lines of tradition, uh, not just as a civic project, but as a religious one. Um, so uh, the central story for me of the warriors is the National Conference of Christians and Jews, an uh, interfaith organization that had been active um, from the 20s on and through the 30s, but that got... Um, really a, a starring role in, in World War II um, because the military used the, the National Conference of Christians and Jews uh, to help promote religious unity, recognizing that you know World War II was a military struggle, of course, but a, in some ways a spiritual struggle, that uh, the United States needed to be uh, united religiously, And here was this interfaith organization ready to do it. So um, they promoted uh, the work of the National Conference of Christians and Jews heavily. And one of the things that the National Conference of Christians and Jews did was organize another religious book week and um, promote reading as a way of um, reading across lines of of tradition. Um, and some of this, of course, had a civic dimension. It was about reducing intolerance, reducing prejudice, uh, uh, you know, this kind of patriotic, let's rally together. Um, but I was very interested in just looking at the reading lists at how much of it was uh, more than that. Uh, how much of it was about gleaning spiritual wisdom and insight from other traditions. And in the 1940s, we see this bearing fruit in, um, well, probably the best example is a book called Peace of Mind written by uh, Rabbi Joshua Liebman from Boston. Came out in 1946, right after the war. It's a highly psychological book. uh, Rabbi Liebman was a, a, a Freudian. But this is the first book written by a non-Christian to reach a mass audience in the U.S. as what I would call a pastoral book uh, that people turned to for its religious council. It had chapters on grief. That was one of the ones that was most heavily promoted in the advertising. You know, Jews are a tiny minority in the U.S., So this book sat at number one in the New York Times bestseller list for months and months. It's not just Jews reading this book, it's American Protestants and Catholics reading a book written by a Jew, not because they wanted to learn more about Judaism, not because they wanted to, um, understand the sociology of American life, but because this was a pastor who was going to help them deal with grief. And this is a new phenomenon in American religious life, reading across these kinds of lines. Um, and World War II is what made that possible.
0: Um, another person that you have kind of an extended conversation about um, is Thomas Merton, who also, yeah. in the same way, kind of speaks through much of the language of you know, experience uh, and psychology and uh, is offering this new, uh, you know, still Christian but but Catholic voice? Can, can you tell us a little bit about how he fits in here?
1: Yeah, you know, some some folks who have um, asked me about Merton in the in the book have said, "Oh, he he seems a little out of place." And in some ways, I understand that because to call Merton, especially the nineteen forties Merton, I mean, this is a book called "The Rise of Liberal Religion." You say, "Well, how is Thomas Merton a, a religious liberal?" First of all, isn't that a Protestant term to begin with? But second of all, this is a guy whose journey seems to be in the opposite direction. He was this, uh, you know, 1920s bohemian who became who converted to Roman Catholicism, right? Converted to pre-Vatican II Roman Catholicism. Um, who disdained psychology. Who disdained American popular culture who Not just became a Catholic, but became a priest and a monk and a Cistercian monk, you know. I mean, this is a guy who seems to be embracing tradition, authority, um, church. Um, and all of that is true about the 1940s Thomas Merton. But what I see in, in Seven Story Mountain as a publishing phenomenon is a story that resonates in some sense much more for the journey than for the destination. And Merton's journey as he outlines it in seven story mountain is as a religious seeker who is fueled and enlivened um, and guided all along by reading Thomas Merton is just the the absolute quintessential uh religious seeker as reader um and so if you if you read Seven Story Mountain, what you see is most of the critical turning points happen because of a new encounter that happens in his reading and um, and this is this is the account that he published like. Liebman's work, this is a book written by a Roman Catholic that became a number, oh, it's a really surprise, number one bestseller. Um, obviously read by huge numbers of American Protestants. Most of them did not convert to Roman Catholicism. Most of them did not become monks, right? So they're not racing off for, um, for the destination that, that Merton arrived at. Um, in, in a letter that I quote in the book, Merton is kind of reflecting on his, his readership, and he says, I, I, I don't have the, probably verbatim the quote, but he says something like, um, most of the readers are uh, women who are wondering how you can have a mystical life and take care of the kids at the same time. And uh, that, to me, is is... Is the appeal of 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 Merton uh, in this moment, but Merton also foreshadows, you know, where this religious cosmopolitanism is going. Um, yes, he was a, 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 a con- converted and and committed Roman Catholic, but his book was read widely by American uh, Protestants. Then, as we know, before long, Merton is, ga- is starting to engage in his famous uh conversations uh, with Buddhist contemplatives and writing uh, wonderfully and fruitfully about that. And so um, you know we see the ways in which both reading culture and religious mysticism becomes uh, a site of the of the sort of religious cosmopolitanism that I see again as, as uh, in terms of my story as the main, um, outcome of the second world war. Um, I'd like
0: to kind of continue a little bit on that. Uh, since I'm an Asianist myself, um, you, you hint at this uh, a little bit in the book, you don't focus on it too much. Um, but, uh, you know, in American religious culture, we often think of kind of mystical and experiential, uh, kind of traditions often associated with, with Eastern religions, uh, within a few decades of when you're talking about, but you, you kind of uh, point us in the right direction. So can, can you talk a little bit about uh, when and how kind of a, a turn to the East, so to speak, kind of enters the conversation in kind of book culture?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because I'm, to a certain extent, I want to say um, – you know, it's Thoreau reading the Bhagavad Gita out at Walden. Um, it's Emerson. I mean, the Transcendentalists uh, did, in in the Dial, in the 1840s, published some of the first uh, texts from, you know, India. They didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, <laughs> they, were, um, they were autodidacts and amateurs. Um, but we get Thoreau showing up in Brooklyn to talk to Whitman after Leaves of Grass has come out. And he says, um, you know, Leaves of Grass reads wonderfully like the Orientals. And Whitman says, what are you talking about? And Thoreau gives him a reading list, you know? Um, and then we start seeing Whitman publishing, um, uh, poems that are, based in his his beginnings to read in Indian religious literature. So on the one hand, I want to say, uh, the historian in me very much wants to say it's not all about the 1960s, right? It's not all about uh, the Ram Dass. Um It's not all about Thomas Merton. But I do think that uh, the the... The Protestant Catholic Jew culture of the Second World War and the the intellectual categories that that was built on, which really are a kind of psychological and mystical uh, or contemplative um, religious liberalism. It's it's a very Jamesian kind of framework that allows for uh, reading. Across the lines of tradition that gets first deployed as a Protestant Catholic Jew um, kind of enterprise in the World War II period, again on a mass level, that this is what this is what makes possible the um the sort of turn to the east that we associate with D.T. Suzuki and the Beats. Um, in the 1950s, and that we associate with so much in American, you know, popular culture and religious life of the 1960s and 70s, Um, that there is a kind of liberal religious, psychological, and mystical framework. Uh, World War II brought this to the masses. It first, it's first sort of trotted out with people like Liebman and Merton in a Protestant Catholic Jew framework and it doesn't take long for uh, that to get expanded even more. But I'll say just one, one last thing uh, about this is that I was surprised even going back into the 1920s to see um, the religious book club, which was um, founded by leaders of the federal council of churches. So kind of the central institution of mainline Protestantism, that had on its editorial board, Harry Emerson Fosdick from union and, you know, other kind of, um, elites of liberal Protestantism, this religious book club, Protestant religious book club of the 1920s in its first year was recommending books on Buddhism. And, um, this greatly surprised me. It was, um, uh, they presented it as an alien faith. And this is their words. They said, I know you don't understand what this is, um, but it was part of that middle brow uh, sense that this is good for you. You need to learn about the world. Um, and 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 again, not just as sociologically or sort of civically, but spiritually. There's wisdom to be had here. Um, that didn't take very well in the twenties. That was the most returned book of the year, yeah. but they were they were they were they were promoting it. Right? Um, a couple decades later, uh, after World War II, in, in a different cultural moment, uh, it takes, and Americans start reading uh, voraciously across the boundaries of tradition.
0: Well, Matt, we uh we've only really just barely scratched the surface here on your book. Um is there anything you wanna kinda uh tell about the book though, uh, that I haven't asked uh before we kind of conclude?
1: Yeah. Um you know, one of the things that I tried to do um is to to develop some characters in the book and uh partly just because my favorite books always have, have good characters. And the one that we haven't had a chance to talk about is the religion editor at Harper's, a man named Eugene Exman, who in a sense I think becomes the kind of central figure of the book because his own biography maps onto the larger story of liberal religion and reading culture in the 20th century. He was a product of the University of Chicago Divinity School. He was the sort of waspy liberal Protestant who went to New York, was a member of Harry Emerson Fosdick's Riverside Church, became the religion editor at Harper's. But just as, as the Harper's Religion Department um, embraced the marketplace and and Uh, started promoting all kinds of religious literature. Axman himself went on this kind of religious adventure. Um, By the 1940s, he was uh, meditating at a Vedantist retreat center in Southern California. He was deeply interested in psychology. He even briefly experimented with LSD. Uh, Didn't find it to be something that he was going to continue doing, but wasn't uh, horrified by it either. Um, You know, this was when people like Aldous Huxley and others were, were doing this as a spiritual uh, tool. And so he, he he just became this kind of really broad and sort of adventurous religious seeker. And, um, you know, to me that trajectory from elite liberal Protestant to um, to really broad religious cosmopolitan is it's his own story. It's the story of his religion department. And in some ways it's the story of, of liberal religion in 20th century America that I wanted to tell in the book.
0: Yeah. And Matt, you do a really uh, great job of, of kind of bringing out the, the personality of, of many, many figures in the book. And uh, while this is a, a podcast, about books, and I've enjoyed talking to you about your book about books. <laughs> I, I don't think those kind of personalities uh, came out here, so I do hope that people kind of pick up the book and read it. Um, before I let you go, though, um, could you tell us a little bit about some of the things you are perhaps working on now, or things that you you have planned for the future?
1: Yeah, so I have sort of, you know, there's the there's the um, the classic question which you're asking him, sort of, what's the next book? <laughs> And I have two next books, and probably the next one to, to um, appear is going to be a short history of uh, religion and books in America, um, sixteen hundred to the present, in ideally about one hundred and eighty pages. It's going to be a short book on a, on a big topic, designed to raise some of the big questions. Um, so those are questions about religious religious authority, about reading and gender, about um, the marketplace. Uh, that's a project that I'm working on with University of Chicago Press. Uh, a sort of medium-term project um, is another work on liberal religion in the late 19th and 20th century, but this time... Um, with a a primary focus on race. And so where I've started this project is looking at um, some Asian religious figures and their um, celebrity in the U.S. And in particular, I've gotten into the archives of Toyohiko Kagawa, who is a, a Japanese Christian pacifist that became an American celebrity between the world wars and, um, Gandhi. And I'm just right now working on, um, Gandhi and the way Gandhi was constructed for American audiences as a Christian saint, a Hindu who was a Christian saint, uh, for American religious liberals. So, but that, that's part of a large book on, on race and religious liberalism. So those are the two things.
0: Great. Well, Matt, uh, I'm sure that we'll have to have you back then because both of those sound wonderful. Uh, thanks again also for making some time to, to talk about your great book, and
1: uh, I, I appreciate it. I sure appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much, Christian.
0: That was my conversation with Matthew Hedstrom about the rise of liberal religion, book culture, and American spirituality in the 20th century, published with Oxford University Press in 2013. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.